You're watching Battleground on ADH-TV, a bastion of reason, liberalism and sanity amid the wishful thinking, dogma and superstition that dominates the public debate today. I'm Nick Cater, Senior Fellow at the Menzies Research Centre, columnist with The Australian and presenter of this programme on Australia's fastest growing alternative media hub, the ADH Network. This week, has Australia reached peak renewables? I've been talking to Dr. A.D. Patterson, former head of the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, about the chronic technical shortfalls of wind and solar generation that nobody else in the media seems to be talking much about. I'll be catching up on New Zealand's economic problems a few months out from its general election with Oliver Hartwich in Auckland. And I'll be announcing a brand new podcast that I'm hosting this week from the ADH TV studios. The best way to view all our content, of course, is via the ADH app, which you can download on your smartphone or smart TV. Well, first, a trigger warning. This sequence contains statistics that may cause distress to viewers who are traumatised by the daily coronavirus press conferences of 2019 and 2020. Jacinda Ardern, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, imposed one of the toughest lockdowns in the world, isolating her delightful little country from the outside world for more than two years with the goal of eliminating the COVID virus completely. That was incompatible with our desire to... Uh, maintain an elimination strategy. We know an elimination strategy has worked for New Zealand before. You know, that's the, that's the way that we have managed to have a larger number of days where we have been without restrictions and not had our people gravely ill and hospitalised and unfortunately losing their lives. So for now, the elimination strategy is the right thing for New Zealand. So for now, Absolutely, elimination is the strategy, particularly while we vaccinate our people. For now, everyone is in agreement. Elimination is the strategy. There is no discussion or debate amongst any of us about that because that is the safest option for us while we continue to vaccinate our people. Well, perhaps it might have been better if there had been a bit of discussion and disagreement amongst, uh, amongst the top team there in New Zealand. How well did that elimination strategy work? Well, here are the latest COVID-19 statistics worldwide. Worldwide, there have been 882 deaths per million people. That's only 0.9%, by the way. So it's hardly the global slaughter we were told it would be. Deaths in New Zealand... 891 COVID fatalities per million. That's slightly above the world average. Australian deaths stand at 801, meaning you're 11% less likely to die in Australia than in New Zealand. And if you remove Victoria, which, of course, was a mad outlier state, uh, Australia looks even better. 665 deaths per million. That's 25% lower than New Zealand. Jacinta Ardern stepped aside as Prime Minister, and perhaps we know now why. Having become a global poster girl for the lockdown left, the Miss World of the social distancing and vaccine coercion universe, she's no longer in the spotlight where she might have to defend her legacy. That task falls to her successor, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, who's running the gauntlet of an election this coming November. Well, to find out how he's faring, I'm pleased to welcome back to battleground the head of the New Zealand Initiative, Oliver Hartwich, who joins me from Auckland. Oliver, uh, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins addressed the Labour Party conference last weekend. Did he succeed in energising his party after almost six years in government? 
He certainly did energize his party. He got standing ovations. It was a really great, successful party conference. The problem is what he said wasn't true because he claimed all sorts of achievements for his government, the government that he's been an integral part of for more than five years. And these achievements simply don't stack up to any scrutiny. I watched it actually on Sunday and I wished we could have just pushed the pause button every now and then just to do some fact checking because it all sounded grandiose. It sounded like fantastic achievements. But once you started digging a little bit deeper, you would have found that actually none of this really stacks up. I was amused when, well, amused. It, I, I, was, I was sighing with, with relief in a way when Jacinta Ardern stepped down. But I, was, it, I, I noted when she was asked what was her greatest achievement, what would she like to be remembered for? She said she wanted to she remembered for being kind, which after all New Zealand had been through in the previous uh, two and a half years uh, seemed a, a little bit ironic. How is that COVID legacy playing out? I mean, do people now, uh, are people waking up and saying, well, we weren't actually kept from the virus. It just came a bit later and hit us even more badly at that point because we had no herd immunity or, or are they still just closing their eyes to it as many people are in Australia and just glad it's all over? Well, frankly, we're hardly talking about it anymore because we've got other things to worry about. We are talking about the cost of living crisis. We are talking about the housing market. We are talking about the reserve bank policies and how far interest rates might have to go. We have a lot of things to worry about in New Zealand. The crumbling healthcare system, the crumbling education sector or deteriorating education performance. There are so many things in New Zealand that are not going right. We simply don't have time to think about COVID. That's so 2020. I mean, <laughs> these days, actually, we've got REM rates, we've got a crime problem in this country. Every 15 hours in New Zealand, someone crashes into a store with a stolen car to burgle that store. We have problems with potholes in our roads. There is hardly any sector in New Zealand that still works. So really, we have absolutely zero time to revisit the COVID years. That is a distant memory. What's, what's the cause of this sudden outbreak of crime there? Is it because people are, you know, dispossessed and disadvantaged and isolated from the rest of the society? What is happening? Or is it just that woke policies have gone bizarrely crazy over there? Well, there's no single cause of all of this. It's a combination of factors. So for a start, we have a police that's gone a little bit soft on crime. Until a few days ago, we had a policy, for example, if you're fleeing from a police pursuit, the police would actually not follow you because it's too dangerous for the police. We've got a pretty woke police commissioner. So this government actually also tried to reduce the prison population. So um, guess what? The prison population has gone down and the prisoners uh, that should be there are now out in the community committing crimes. And then, of course, we've got a crumbling education system. We have a system now where in Dessau 1 communities, only 25% of students attend more than 90% of the time. And you wonder where the others are and what they're doing and what they're getting on, onto. Well, actually, if you look at the crime statistics, you might have a part of the answer. So actually, a few things are going in the wrong direction at the same time. And on top of that, of course, you have a cost of living crisis. So for a lot of families, actually, it is pretty tough getting on by. So what do they resort to? Some of them, it might actually be criminal activity. So there is no single one cause of this crime wave. It's all coming together, but it's massive. I've actually just attended a conference um, which we organized ourselves where we heard about 
the rising crime problem in our New Zealand retail sector. And we heard really scary stories. The figures are really worrying. And as I said, every 15 hours we know a RAM rate in New Zealand, something that didn't happen until maybe about a year ago. I had never heard of RAM rates before, but this is now an ongoing feature in New Zealand reporting. Well, perhaps you ought to declare a lockdown here in Australia and ban people coming over here. Because I've watched this in the States, Oliver. You know, it's happening in, in many American cities, as you know, this same phenomena. And I thought, well, we're isolated here. But look, it's, it's, reached, it's reached Auckland by the sound of it. Let's hope it stays there. Let, let's deal with the, the economy just quickly before I want to go back to education. But you say it sounds a, a very familiar story from, from this side of the Tasman uh, uh, Rising inflation, stubbornly high inflation, 6.8% here is the latest figure. Interest rates going up because governments don't like cutting spending, so there's only one tool they can use, and that's to force families to cut their spending, which is happening here. It's causing a lot of problems. How bad is the situation in New Zealand? Situation is bad because inflation is running just under 7%. Um, also, we have seen a massive increase in the government's budget. So if you look at actually how much government spends this year, we are about $4,800 per capita inflation adjusted above the levels of government spending in 2017 when Labour took, took power. We are more than $11,000 more in debt per capita compared to 2017 when Labour took power. So actually, this government has got us into debt. This government is spending a lot more. Unfortunately, despite all of this extra spending, we're not seeing the results. We're not seeing improvements in our healthcare system. We're not seeing improvements in education. We're not seeing improvements in infrastructure delivery. It's simply not there. Now, the government says a lot of this is just because of the disasters we've had. And we've had a lot of them. We had a volcanic eruption. We had the pandemic. We had a cyclone now. And of course, government needs to clean up after all of this. And yet... All of this really started in the first couple of years of this Labour government. So by the end of 2019, before any of these disasters happened, we were already massively above spending plans. Actually, even above the plans that Labour took to the election in 2017, they presented New Zealanders with a plan for fiscal management. They claimed it was prudent fiscal management, except once in government, they never played to that plan. So really, our fiscal situation is worrying, our prices are out of control, the economy is overheated because of the money printed by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, nothing in New Zealand really works. Yeah, so similar, similar problem, right? We know this happens, we hoped it wouldn't, but every time an emergency is declared, whether it's the global financial crisis or COVID or whatever, Government goes out and spends money and it says it must because it's dealing with an emergency, but the level of spending never returns to what it was before. It just sets the new normal, right? And, and here they're calling it the structural budget problem. It's not it's nothing structural about it except the government spending more money than it's receiving in taxes and it's struggling to find anything more to tax. That's pretty much the situation, isn't it? That is exactly right. And actually, it's nothing new because we've seen this after crises, after wars. Economists know this as the ratchet effect. So you've got a crisis, government needs to spend a bit more. After the crisis is over, government spending goes down a little bit, but never quite to the previous level. And so over time, like a ratchet, it goes up. 
And there's an economist and a historian, Robert Hicks. He wrote a whole book about this, and it was called Crisis and Leviathan, because Leviathan, our state, loves crises. Because every time there's a crisis, the government can come in and say, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, and you have to give me your money. And afterwards, after the crisis is over, we'll never go back to that. That's exactly where we've been here. We've had a lot of crises over the last few years, and the government used every single one of them to justify its existence. The school system over there, as you say, is causing uh, a lot of people a lot of grief. And this latest proposal, I could hardly believe this, this is so 1960s, to do away with streaming. So the idea is you don't want to separate the thickies from the smart kids because it might, I don't know, do something to them. And you're going to put them all in the same classroom. And I went to a school like that, Oliver. That's what they did in my school for about three years. And it was terrible because if... If you were a smart kid and you wanted to learn, you were continually being held back or disrupted. It, it, it's, it's been tried before. It doesn't work. Is the New Zealand government serious about this? Yes, the New Zealand government is serious about this. And actually, at the moment, we are doing research onto this proposal here at the New Zealand Initiative. I'm concerned about it for the same reasons that you are concerned about this, because actually it's some kind of egalitarian ideal, which in practice doesn't really work, because we know that some students are better than others and they have different needs. If you are a highly talented student, of course you have different needs, because if you are not actually challenged, you will just basically sit back, relax and completely miss the class. So actually, even for the highly talented students, we need different policies, because otherwise we're failing them. And of course, if you're not that gifted mathematically, for example, we have to give you completely different support actually to help you in your um, learning. But actually, on top of all of that, we simply have the wrong kind of teaching methodology. We have the wrong assessment system. We have the wrong curriculum. Again, this is one of those areas in which New Zealand is systematically doing the wrong things and has been doing the wrong things for decades now. And we're paying the price because we can see actually what it's done to attainment in New Zealand schools. We can see it in the outcomes where New Zealand students are functionally illiterate and innumerate. And this government is co just compounding on all of these problems with more policies like this ban of streaming and new um, teacher manuals telling them actually, you have to teach ethnomathematics, you have to teach critical literacy, all of this stuff. None of this helps. We actually really have to go back to basics and teach the basics well. Now, Oliver, there's been some serious charges laid against you and your think tank. You've been accused of killing the video games industry. At the Absolutely, recent, yes. <laughs> at the recent budget, <laughs> the government announced it was going to subsidise the video games industry. So that's great for Australian video games consumers, right? We're being subsidised by the New Zealand government. But I think you came out and said that was a very bad idea for a lot of good reasons. Tell me about it. Well, let's put it this way. You in Australia, you are subsidizing your wonderful video games industry with a 45% tax rebate. And of course, um, if you're so generous, the New Zealand government actually thinks we have to match this somehow. So in our recent budget, our government offered a 20% tax rebate worth about 140 million New Zealand dollars. That was supposed to be enough to keep our games developers here rather than seeing them disappear across the ditch. But the problem is actually, it's a ruinous kind of competition. So we are trying to outbid each other in subsidies and tax breaks and state aid, when in fact, what we should be doing is we should be saying to the industry, hey, we want you to be competitive, but it means you have to stand on your own two feet. You shouldn't rely on government handouts. You shouldn't be, shouldn't be relying on subsidies. And 
what I've suggested actually in a column for The Australian, which I published about um, a week ago, we should learn a thing or two from the European Union. Yes, you heard this right, from the terrible <laughs> European Union that is known for red tape and for all sorts of stupid things, but every now and then they get things right. And the one thing that I actually referred to was a ban on state aid in the European Union Treaty, because they have the same problem, of course, governments trying to outbid each other for subsidies and tax breaks and all of these wonderful things for companies and uh, corporate welfare. They've banned this. They have said you can't have this because um, otherwise it's a race to the bottom and taxpayers will be paying the price. So I suggested in my column for the Australian, why don't we do the same here? We have closer economic relations. That's the free trade agreement between Australia and New Zealand. It's now 40 years old. It's one of the world's best free trade agreements. But there's one thing is missing, and that is state aid control. We should actually have something in there which prohibits Canberra and Wellington from conspiring against consumers and taxpayers and from engaging in a battle for who can pay the most corporate welfare. Because mm. in the end, I think it's consumers and taxpayers paying the price, and we should prevent this. So let's put this into CER. As I said, we're celebrating 40 years of close economic relations, and that's a great thing. But now it's time to take it to the next level and really rule out this ruinous competition for who pays the most in subsidies. Well, I'm happy to sign up to that campaign, Oliver, because it seems to me that, that what you know, we, we worked so hard, didn't we, to try and get rid of tariffs uh, and other impediments to free trade, and yet it's coming back. It's this global subsidy arms war. And, uh, exactly. And what we're seeing, you know, I think what's really affecting us right now is what's happened in the United States. Three, $360 billion, if I think, if my memory serves me right, US billions, in subsidies to support largely, you know, the, the, the new Green New Deal that's actually been called the Inflation Reduction Act for some reason, I don't understand, but it's a Green New Deal. And, and for instance, with green hydrogen, this um, pipe dream that some people in this country are pursuing, they're up in arms because they're not going to be able to attract the capital they want because it's all going to the United States. So now the Australian government is subsidising green hydrogen to the tune of $2 billion. It's the same old, isn't it? As you say, it's a race to the bottom. And, and you know, I mean, you talk about video games, there are much bigger things at stake, aren't they? Exactly. And we should be competing, of course. So what I'm saying is not uh, saying we shouldn't be competing. Of course we should be competing, but we should be competing on the right things. So you have to actually create an attractive country, an attractive labor market. You have to qualify your people in the right kind of way. You have to do all these supply side things actually to really keep your country attractive. But you shouldn't be competing on things like tax breaks and subsidies because that is ruinous. And I mean, in the end, um, taxpayers will be paying a massive price for that. In Australia, you're already doing that. And now New Zealand is actually trying to do the same. But it's an arms race that no one can win apart from a few lucky companies that will get undeserved tax breaks. Oliver, you began this interview by fact-checking the uh, New Zealand government. I think you might have fact-checked me. I think I might have said November the election. I believe it's October. Is that right? It's October the 14th. So just quickly before we end, uh, how's it going? How do you think it's playing out? Oh, it's 50-50 at the moment. It's really hard to say. Uh, we had an opinion poll last week which had the opposition slightly ahead really by two seats in a 120-seat parliament. We had another opinion poll from Roy Morgan just a couple of days ago, which had the government actually slightly ahead. So at the moment, it's really hard to tell. 
I think a lot will depend on actually how this economy will do over the next four months because Kiwis are feeling the pain because of rising interest rates, rising mortgage rates. Um, it's, it's really hard to tell. But at the moment, I wouldn't want to put a bet either way. Well, Oliver, it's always good to talk to you to take a, a re relief, a, 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 a moment's relief from our own economic and political madness on this side of the uh, of, the, of the Tasman and hear about yours. I wish you all the best. You're doing a great job over there. Thank you, Oliver, for joining us today. Thanks, Nick. Tonight, I'm offering a little free policy advice to Energy Minister Chris Bowen. The challenge on the table to decarbonise the electricity grid. And to look for answers, let's just have a quick flight around the world in real time using an app called electricitymaps.com. We'll start in the Yukon in far northwest Canada, where the grid is currently running as close to zero carbon as you can get. The electricity systems emitting just 24 grams of carbon for every kilowatt hour of electricity, which I can tell you is very low, 100% carbon free to all intents and purposes. Here's what's happening in Ontario right now, 21 grams of carbon per kilowatt hour. That's 98% low carbon electricity. Green star to Ontario. Let's take a swing across the Atlantic to Finland, where the grid is emitting 41 grams of carbon per kilowatt hour. That's 96% carbon free to all intents and purposes. Well done, the Finns. And now back to Australia, Queensland right now. They're emitting 737 grams of carbon per kilowatt hour, 35 times more than in Ontario, Canada. Just 8% of the electricity in Queensland is low carbon. That's mostly wind. For the rest, well, coal and gas, what to expect. Chris Bowen says what Australia needs is more wind turbines and more solar panels. But of course, wind and solar, as any galah will tell you, does not produce dispatchable, reliable energy. The fuel mix in Queensland over the last 24 hours tells the story. There's a heap load of low emission electricity in the middle of the day. At lunchtime yesterday, for instance, Queensland was running on 54% solar power and 3% wind. But at 6pm, it's a very different picture. 26% gas, 66% coal, which has a carbon intensity of 820 grams per kilowatt. So why is Australia fading so miserably? You might say that the 44,000 hardy souls in the Yukon just got lucky. They're blessed with heaps of mountains and plenty of water, and they've installed four hydroelectric dams that provide 100% of their energy with zero carbon emissions. But in the heavy industrial province of Ontario, they've had to make their own luck. Here's Ontario's mix for the last 24 hours. They were running off 30% hydro, a smidgen of solar, 16% from wind turbines, and the remaining 50% is coming from nuclear power. Back to Finland, 20% of the electricity is coming from the Finnish hydro plants, another 12% from hydro generators in Sweden, 17% of the current demand is coming from wind turbines. The heavy lifting is coming from nuclear. So here's what the leader of the Finnish Green Party has to say. Resources are uh, re renewables alone enough. And I encourage everyone to do this math. This is what the Greens of Finland have been doing. And uh, as a result, we've actually adopted a more technology neutral, pragmatic and to some extent pro-nuclear uh, stance on energy policy. So when Bowen turns up his nose at nuclear... Because it's a very bad idea. He's rejecting the only viable technology that will get us anywhere close to his ambitious 
2050 zero target, which leads to just one conclusion. For all his earnest rhetoric, Australia's energy minister just doesn't seem that serious about getting to net zero. This week, I'm launching a brand new podcast on the ADH network, The Grid, energy conversation for the serious. If, like me, you're sick to death of the maladroit, under-researched, dumbed-down debate about energy that's been going on since climate change was first discovered by Kevin Rudd earlier this century, uh, you'll appreciate these podcasts, I'm sure. We're going to seek out the most knowledgeable people in the field and sit down and talk for as long as it takes to get across the full detail, because it's only by getting across the detail that you can begin to make sense of our energy system and why it's all going so badly wrong. In the first episode of The Grid, my guest is Dr. A.D. Patterson, the former head of the Ansto nuclear facility at Lucas Heights, Sydney. You can watch and listen to the whole fascinating conversation available soon from the ADH app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast provider. Here's an extract. Are we at the point or have we already reached the point of peak renewables in our energy system? I think that's a profound question. I, I think if we want robust electricity um, to serve us into the future, we are at peak renewables for the current form of the grid. And um, we're at risk of having too much renewables. In fact, um, I'm up in Queensland. I was just looking at the highest price in the last 24 hours. Uh, of the order of $15,000 a kilowatt hour after the sun went down, because when the sun went down, the wind stopped blowing and the price just blew out until they could turn up uh, the coal plants. Well, I mean, let's try and make the argument, or let's try and say why some people can justify the argument we need more uh, wind, solar, batteries and hydro in the grid. Uh, I mean, according to the ABS statistics, there's been about $48 billion of investment in renewable energy and the associated uh, transmission lines and, and so forth in the last five years, $48 billion. And we have actually made some progress, right? So if you look at the national electricity market, that's the grid on the East Coast here in Australia, uh, we are now gone down from something like 20 years ago, probably something like... 750 to 800 grams of carbon per kilowatt hour uh, down to 549. So we have dropped it, but not not that much. But there is an argument that if we keep putting more renewables in the system, we can bring that level of carbon intensity down. Why do you think that's not that that's not so? I, I think when you start, it's relatively easy to do because you. Um are really dealing with the peaks uh, in the load curve. And when there's a peak in the load curve, when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, which tends to happen for big chunks of the year, uh, during the middle of a working day and a working week, for example, you do decarbonize a very, very uh, carbon intensive grid. However, the other part of the experiment has already been done in Australia, where they really don't have any firm resources. They've just built a, a gas plant at, uh, at Olympic Dam to, to help firm up uh, the, that, that corner of the grid. And you have got a lot of solar and you have got a lot of wind. And in fact, the last two weeks of May and the first two weeks of June are the worst time in the South Australian grid because it is uh, winter and the wind drops uh, during uh, the end of May and the beginning of June because it's at its low, lowest ebbs uh, in South Australia. 
And so South Australia at the moment is being backed up by a brand new shiny gas plant uh, and imports from the rest of the country. And this is the conundrum of renewables. When they're working, they're working. But when they're not working, they're a risk and they're actually a constraint because you, you have to have um, full coverage for the full scope of the renewables because they cannot be relied upon. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's right, isn't it? I mean, um, thanks to technology, I can call up South Australia's grid right now, and it's 67% low carbon. That's quite high. Uh, yeah. Bear in mind, I, I think South Australia, I'm right in thinking, and aren't I, has got the highest concentration of renewable energy of any uh, state in the country. So they, yeah. they, they do okay. There's a lot of solar in there uh, and wind right now. But as you say, there's still... Uh, 26% gas, so this is all contributing to their their carbon emissions of uh, 203 grams per kilowatt hour, which is um, it, it's lower than the east the the other eastern states, but it's not nothing, right? So to get yeah. from and then we're talking about we are recording this, of course, um, what about three o'clock in the afternoon? So it, it, there's there's a bit of solar around and and wind. Uh, you know, looking at the record over the last 24 hours, they're going to go to a point probably about six or seven o'clock this evening where there's barely any renewables in the system. So bridging that gap from where they've got to down to, you know, a, a low or zero, essentially zero carbon system is a big job, isn't it? You're not going to do that just yeah. by putting more wind and solar in the system. Yeah, and, and that's why uh, we have got people who are into that renewables plus camp where people are starting to talk about battery storage. Now, my view, um, and I've, I've got a background in batteries from my previous work that I did in South Africa when I ran an energy institute that wasn't just nuclear. Uh, in fact, it had no nuclear at all. We were doing battery technology. We were doing clean coal technology and other things. One of the challenges of batteries is, first of all, they're not renewable at all. They are resource intensive. And secondly, they're not a primary generator. This is a mistake AEMO makes. They call batteries generators, which is really strange for a market operator not to know the difference between a bucket of electrons and a, and a source <laughs> of electrons. That's a rookie error, isn't it, it seems to me? I mean, they're, they're clearly not generating any electricity, whatever else they're doing. Yeah, I, th I think the danger of AEMO making rookie errors is actually they're meant to be the experts in the room. <clears throat> and so it is yeah. a bit embarrassing when they call batteries a generator. But I think this is the this is the root of the problem. Is that uh, is that our strategic imperative seems to be renewables, not lowest carbon. Now, if we want to be in the world that we're trying to create, we have to go to a lowest carbon world. That is not the same as a maximum renewables world. And so there's strategic confusion in the fact that we are now going to build an extra grid. Now, the grid in the, the, the Australian Eastern grid is probably the most complex machine in the Southern Hemisphere already. And we are going to nearly double the size of it over the next 15 to 20 years. That'll make it doubly uh, complex to operate, but it will only have half the energy density that the current one does. So it'll be a floppy double the size grid. And this is the problem that we're trying to convey to people is that the grid is really your lifeline. It's like your blood supply in your body. You, can't, you don't want to compromise your blood supply by saying when the sun goes down, we'll, you know, half, of, half of your heart can't beat anymore. And by the way, if the wind's not blowing, then sort of 80% of, of, of your heart can't work anymore. The beating heart, the electrons, people are confusing with the blood supply. 
Um, and you, you have to have that always on 50 hertz, pumping it out, keeping us going in terms of electricity. And it's not the fact of where it comes from. It's the quality of those 50 hertz electrons, 50 times a second that we need in order to ensure the survival of um, uh, basically our industry, um, our quality of life, uh, you know, our sewage system, the ability to keep the medical wards open in the middle of the night if we have a national emergency of some sort. People think of it in terms of their comfort, not the society that we have to operate for everybody. Mm. Well, I, let's let's go to that challenge because I, I mean, I, I've got to thank you for for drawing to my attention the complexity of this engineering challenge of running a, a grid. So, if you think about the water supply, for instance, it's easy. You know, if rain falls, it falls into the the dam, and then when people open their taps, some of that water flows through. There's no problem. The supply. Well, with the supply, we would hope, would always exceed demand because we don't want to run out. With electricity, it's quite different, right, Aidy? So you've got, yep. you have to at every moment of the day exactly match the amount of electricity supplied, the amount of electricity yep. capacity in the grid with the amount of demand. Uh, yep. And that's very, very hard, right? In fact, you can define. Um, the post-Second World War Industrial Revolution right across the world uh, as a 50 or 60 hertz revolution. It was the ability to electrify large parts of, of industry. It obviously also was to do with hydrocarbons. But in a post-hydrocarbon world with no oil and gas meant to be in the system, we've got a massive challenge ahead of us. In fact, electricity by itself is only about one third of the challenge. Taking the heat capacity from uh, oil and gas and coal that is used to run our industries, not the electrons part, the, the heat part, is almost not thought about in the Australian setting. And so we are really talking about a post-industrial society which won't be able to make aluminium, for example. Uh, it will not make anything that uh, requires a really clean um, uh, 50 hertz signal coming through. Because, in fact, uh, the 50 hertz that we think is so simple is, in fact, uh, the pulse rate of many industrial processes that use the 50 hertz signal to do manufacturing, for example, precision injection molding, uses the electricity signal as a clock to do the injection molding. So if the 50 hertz is not working or it's messy, people will not be able to do that type of manufacturing. In fact, people, are, you know, I'm aware of companies that have left South Australia because the low quality of their 50 hertz now uh, is, 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 is so poor that you cannot actually get that precision that you need. You, you almost get a wave on the wave, so to speak. I don't know if you've ever paddled out to the, the, the back and you're waiting for that beautifully shaped wave to come along and you're about to take it and another little ripple gets on it messes the whole thing up. I was going to have the best ride of my life. Well, it's exactly like that with electricity. If it isn't that well-shaped way of doing the work, you just cannot actually have the quality of life that you would have had if you had the proper electricity. Well, because this will come as a shock to some people because, you know, there's no conception broadly in the community that there is good, bad or clean and dirty uh, electricity in that sense so the i and you, you take let's go back so 
you've already said about the pulsing effect. So electricity pushed out on the AC system, the the alternating current system, comes in pulses 50 times a second or or thereabouts. Direct current is it's always there so battery maybe direct current a wind turbine solar panel direct current so at some point you've got to create turn that direct current into uh alternating current through an inverter you know many people be familiar with inverters i mean i've got one in my car for instance that can turn a battery into uh, 240 volts so i can do some modest things like boil a small kettle we all know about those but you have to do it in sync right and that is the challenge is it not to yeah. get yeah. to make sure that the directed current is not only converted to 50 hertz but that that wave cycle is exactly in sync how, how precisely does it have to be in sync it, it has to be uh, precise to thousandths of a second so if you take a second and divide it up into a thousand pieces you would want that sine wave to be clean in exactly the right place right across uh that thousandth of a second. So, so basically, the and this is what people I think really struggle to understand. The electricity system is not just a fifty hertz system; it's a clean, beautifully clean fifty hertz system, because all of the current sort of coal plants and gas plants are synchronized right across the grid because the grid itself is its own fastest computer. It synchronizes itself, so all of these machines line up, and all of the spinning machines spin at fifteen hundred RPM. Now, if you divide 60 into that, you get 50 hertz, right? So it's 60 times 50, 1500. That is that is 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 how we get uh, uh, get get the um, the 50 hertz signal. That signal uh, and that waveform, we use alternating current because it's very easy to move around the place. You can put it into somebody's backyard. You can put it into somebody's factory. You can put it into uh, a motor that is out um, uh, in in an industrial environment. And so it's really important to recognize that 50 hertz is not just electrons, but it's the signal that keeps everything going in the 50 hertz world. Now, when we start to mess around with that and use direct current, um, that is that it's, it's got a voltage, but it doesn't have any waveform on it. When you have lots and lots of, of little wind farms and lots and lots of, of uh, solar panels, they all have to synchronize into that grid when they arrive at the fence of the solar farm or at the fence of the wind turbine uh, farm. They have to join in the right way. Now, you've just talked about the fact that you've got a little inverter in your car. You can have one in your house if you've got panels on your roof. That's great if you don't need a high quality of power. Uh, You can get away with it. But when you've got those scattered all over the place and you're trying to join them up and you have replaced all of those big um, coal plants and you've replaced all of the uh, uh, the gas plants and so on, and, and what you're left with is only intermittent renewables, the question then becomes, how do you form the signal uh, you know, from South Australia to the top of Queensland that is synchronized right across Australia to a microsecond all the time? And that problem is definitely not solved. And so there is a a maximum limit to the amount of that intermittency that you can have on the grid that uh, doesn't distort the underlying signal and compromise your ability to to use the 50 hertz in your economy. And my feeling is is that amount um, sort of starts becoming important at about 20% renewables. We've already got more than that in South Australia. 
and it saturates at about 40%, which is about the maximum amount you can get out of a wind turbine in a normal day. The wind blows only about 40% of the time. And once you're above that so-called saturation point, uh, any extra renewables just disrupt the quality of your, your electricity supply because they are intermittent. You can't rely on them. And certainly in the middle of the night, you, you can't rely on solar panels. And if the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, and these are your two primary sources of electrons, you've got a fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is you can't have a 50 hertz grid under those conditions. And now to your comments. Uh, this week in The Australian, I drew attention to the campaign that's gaining ground in the Labour Party to crack down on ruminating cows. The motion before the party's national conference in August seeks to cut agricultural emissions of methane from cattle by 50%. Now, we've seen what this climate fundamentalism has led to in the Netherlands, where farmers have been forced off the land, and the same arguments are now being perpetrated here and may well become official Labour Party policy very soon. Jill writes, this spells the death of the most efficient form of agriculture, the small family farm. How much do Australians want to spend on food? If you think inflation has increased the cost of food, wait till you see scarcity. It only took 10 years for Venezuela to go from one of the highest standards of living in the world to a basket case economy and a socialist hellhole. Does anyone want to buy a 6,000 acre beef property? Mm. Anthony offers these, this prediction. The supply of meat halved, prices more than doubled. Some people can't afford meat, farmers out of work, little income, reliance on welfare handouts. Less people paying taxes, more debt, more interest overseas. These fools just do not understand the agricultural industries and have no regard or respect for the people in the bush. Their stupidity in not seeing the consequences of their demands makes one wonder where they got their education. Well, I think we know the answer to that, don't we, in the universities. John writes, just ignorant twits trying to impose their misguided views on the rest of us. They should be resisted with all possible means. And Kat offered this reaction. What are those zealots after, after? Destroying humans? I mean, really? We hate farmers now for growing our food? So what do we live on? Clean air? I mean, these nutters hate everything. First coal and now cows. They are delusional. And then there was this from Rands. Full-blown communism. Except they haven't quite worked out which one of them is going to be the supreme leader. And there was this from Anne. I simply cannot believe that the Labour Party would be so ignorant as to adopt this food suicide thinking, let alone legislate these plans. It confirms that the society, especially the present Australian government, is led by mad activists who don't have a clue about the real world. They simply want power at the expense of destroying our wonderful agricultural industry. How ignorant can the government be to entertain such stupidity? Indeed, Anne, but uh, there may well be worse to come, as Peter warns with this comment, how many times do we have to be reminded that these anarchists have a laundry list? Time for the adults to push back at this catastrophe nonsense. And finally, this from Joy. Could the lefties please just tell us what the end game is? This death by 1,000 cuts is unbearable. Well, don't forget the new podcast, The Grid, energy conversation for the serious on the ADH app, or you can download it on... Uh, 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you like. It's there for everybody and you'll enjoy it, I'm sure. Uh, it just remains for me to thank the team here at ADH for their production and to my team at the Mendes Research Centre for assisting me with the research. So, and you, of course, the, the viewers, the people without whom none of this would be possible. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week.